Good evening and welcome to The Obelisk. Tonight's guest is the illustrious Jared Murphy. Jared is a self-experimenter and research, field researcher of ancient technologies and lost history. He's traveled the world searching for evidence of advanced ancestors and high technology. That's that's the whole intro. <laughs> there it is. That's it. Jared, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. No, thanks for coming. It's you again, Jared. It's Wait, you again. Newman. <laughs> from here, I'm sending you a drink from the dark end of the bar. <laughs> Sign me about time. Um, is it a smoky, smoke-filled room? Yes, vape, it's, it's cloves. Let's go back to the twenties. It's cloves. Oh, that's great. That means it's definitely on the down low, and we're in a speakeasy. See. <laughs> So, all right, since it was my bad with your bio, can you give us a uh, an abbreviated version? Because and, and they're called Lord... Breathe Easies now. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah. No mask. Breathe Easy. Oh. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, because if we were not in a period, uh, you know, knock three door, you know, knock on the door three different special ways to get into the speakeasy, if it was a modern speakeasy, uh, are you supposed to be in here? I, I don't know. And then we could take off our masks. <laughs> I like that. Yes. Um, yeah. So uh, the basic intro. So I spent almost uh, what started out to be four years ago. I was going to write a book and it was going to be about uh, restoring the oldest mummies on earth, which happened to be at the time. It's known that the Paracas of Peru, these elongated skull mummies, are uh, naturally preserved to at least 9,000 years old. And I thought a great premise for a book that now people are prompting me to write was going to be different governments reanimating the oldest mummies on Earth because the technology had reached that far. Yet the enemies they were that the the mummies they were reanimating would have access to shadowy memories of ancient high technology on the planet. And I get one day into research and uh, I hear about this guy, Colonel Percy Fawcett, who has, of course, been played by Brad Pitt in The Lost City of Z. And he disappears in the Amazon. But before he does, he's last seen at this Amazonian village to which I, day two of research, which turns into a four-year, pro well, three and a half years until I get my publisher, Olaf Phillips, and then another six months of editing and another 60,000 words uh, ends up with my book coming out. Uh, this year. Well, now last year. And what happened was, is they said, this is called Terra Preta. It's an engineered soil. It's the richest growing soil on earth. It's uh, been looked at for a hundred years by soil scientists. We don't know how to make it, but it's super interesting because it has piezoelectric properties. It filters heavy metals. It filters carbon dioxide. And we estimate that there's an area twice the size of Spain in Brazil of this engineered soil and well that's neat let's go look for colonel percy Fawcett where he disappeared and as a self-experimenter as far as a bio goes uh i played the violin seriously till i was 21 i've been into sound and frequencies and self-experimentation which really means it and includes i was lucky enough to be a part of wim hoff's first uh, class in the United States. He's the ice man. He's considered superhuman. He has been proven by many collegiate and academic environments to have conscious control of his immune system. I've experimented with that being paleo uh, movement, like uh, Erwin LaCour, Ido Portal, 
uh, I'm a climber. The idea is always to be learning. I, I wanted to be an archaeologist when I was five and tell stories. And I, I, and I never, I, I guess by the time I was in second grade, my grandfather had been a tank commander. He landed in the, with the seventh armored. He was in a tank at D-Day and was in a tank through Belgium and Holland and back to France for Battle of the Bulge and was in a tank all the way to Berlin. And I was fascinated with history, starting with my grandfather being a tank commander like Brad Pitt and Fury, which is ironic that I now mentioned two movies with Brad Pitt, but that's a first. I'm sensing a theme here. <laughs> at least, at least it wasn't Nick Cage. Uh, all right. So that's, I like that. So what basically happened was I start doing this research and start connecting that, you know, cymatic polygonal construction where people are like, okay, waves and frequencies are connected to these buildings that they're canceling earthquakes. And I start doing this research on this uh, engineered soil. And I find that the identical Terra Preta is in North Africa and South Africa. And it all just kind of connects. I've just had this curiosity where I don't know how many, I don't want to out myself as a complete nerd, but I don't know a lot of people that were reading quantum mechanics uh, philosophy at 17 for funsies. And I just have an interest in uh, spintronics and, you know, just where we're going with just everything from solid state hard drives to, you know, uh, nano uh, technology, like uh, Ray Kurzweil's The Singularity is Near, how does it fit into our future? And I've just had a big curiosity for all these things and I can't help but get into it. So when I started Plus on you, the book- You do like a pinch of the macabre too. Oh, just, just so to much. round it out, baby. No, no <laughs> like when you think it's a joke where you soft off screw the red pepper and you let people pour it all out, you can just dump it, baby. Dump the whole bag. I'm Let's, getting hot. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly why we're doing this show, Jerry. I this think I'm just going to hang up right now. <laughs> we always it's, do this. <laughs> it's getting hot in here. <laughs> okay, yeah. back to you. Jazz hands. Jazz hands. <laughs> um, we could do half the show listening to her just maniacally laugh. I know. It's great, isn't it? <laughs> what we, you guys. What we going to do tonight? <laughs> Jared, get back on track. Right. I'm sorry. Okay. You so got me yeah, all wet with that liquid. Um, Stop with the wetness. That's glycol. And as far as wet goes, it's very snowy outside. I don't know what else <laughs> she could be referring to, in the dungeon of uh, thoughts. It was seventy the, here today. Mm. By the way. Oh my gosh! So <laughs> it's oh hey, hey, our temperature's up. It's a solid. I think when I walked in the door, uh, one degree. Ooh. So it's oh, up my. like. 13 degrees. Good old where, Minnesota. Where Minnesota? Okay. Uh, I am currently in Minneapolis and uh, broadcasting Sorry. from Minneapolis. So in the heart of a number of unsocially correct conversations. That's where Ren You're in up. the heart of Somalia. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, at least there's good portions of the city. But uh, Jerry, what was that last question? I'm, no, I said Ren lives up in Minneapolis. I'm looking bumped in. Ren Collier. Ren Collier. I'm so sorry. Who? <laughs> His name is Ren Collier, friend of the show. It's all oh, right. Cool. He's and Ren's awesome. I can't know everyone, but maybe no, I want to know Ren. He, he's in the circle. You know, he figured. Yeah, there's like a. It's like we get closer together, and we all start to have our little glow sticks that go off. <laughs> Doesn't that mean you're CIA? You glow in the dark. Uh, oh, that's great. Scratch Only and his sniff. penis. Mm -hmm. uh, scratch and sniff espionage. Mm -hmm. Keep going. Keep going. You'll smell strawberry. Ooh. Um, <laughs> as long as it's not poo. 
that's just a naughty flavor. Yep. <laughs> that's the they, back room stuff. They call it, I made a messy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's called two toddlers and a Crayola. Oh, Lord. And compliment, complimentary toilet paper. <laughs> yep. I ate all my Crayola. <laughs> Put your head down like you do for the rest of the exercises, Ralphie. <laughs> um, okay, okay. We derailed you enough. Lord uh, have mercy. I will take your mental canvas and Jackson Pollock the whole thing. Ooh. Oh, Jerry's going dark. This <laughs> oh, is getting no. dark. I, just, I turned my light on just for a second. I'll leave it on if you'd want. Oh, no, 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 no. Go, no, no, no. I can see you. I like the mood setting. Don't, don't feel free. Yeah, the mood um, setting's sexy dark like that. Oh, crap. Mine's way too lit then. I know, right. baby. You need candles. You got sharp. What about your candles? lighting? I have the same I have the same quarter inch of your face over here again. Where's your video? Huh? Come, come at me, bra. Come at me. Oh, oh, hey, bra. Hey, bra. So Chocolate get, me, bra. Let's mm. get back. <laughs> Terrible. Uh, so, yeah, I think that um, it's been really fun. So what happened was, is three and a half years of research go by, and I was able to meet my publisher, Olaf Phillips, the uh, publisher of Paranoia Magazine, uh, Paranoia Podcast. He's actually doing two new podcasts. Olaf, of course, uh, wrote the Secret Space Program and has been on a number of shows. Uh, I mean, a significant amount of shows. He's done work with Scott Walter and uh, been on uh, as a ufologist and expert um, over the years quite extensively. So I was lucky enough to meet him at Contact in the Desert. And we became, um, it just turned out to be a good fit because I came at this at an angle that no one had, which was uh, with my background in historical remodeling, I started in a very old neighborhood in St. Paul uh, near Summit and Grand Avenue, which is where the capital is and uh, our local cathedral and what is considered one of the most intact avenues in the entire country for um, old 1800s style homes. And so I started, I thought, <laughs> I thought that restoration remodeling would be easy. And so you have a different eye for engineering and for, cause I wasn't just painting. I wasn't just replastering walls. It was knocking out this structural load and how do you move that weight and how do you uh, add something new with something old. And so there's a different discernment that comes in when you look at construction and engineering, but I've had an interest in earth homes, concrete built form structures. I'm a big fan of container homes. And I, I just had been at it for a while, but the, uh, when Olaf and I got started, the, the issue for me right away is if there are biochars engineered soils all over the earth, uh, that's not very popular or going to be explainable, especially well, first off, uh, some of the, uh, carbon dating has said, well, okay, well, some of the, some of the tests have shown this soil is at least 8,000 years old. There's also a problem with it. There's a professor currently in Kansas that's been researching it that shows that the soil has this weird ability to literally maintain itself, to repair and or expand. And the issue is, is that there are different versions of what we, the modern commercial version is called biochars. And what drew Olaf to the book and for what ultimately became our contract and then we got started on working on producing was that, uh, it's not the only location when you have the exact exact terra preta in northern africa and australia right now it's really popular to get on shows and talk about the australians and the uh that the egyptians were in australia that the egyptians were in the grand canyon 
and that the uh, Egyptians definitely uh, made it beyond what we think of their travel pattern. But what hasn't become on the radar yet is Terra Prade itself is in um, middle Australia and it is in these three continents. But then there are other biochars, which I keep trying to get to is an engineered soil made up of different biomasses. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's it's not a matter of just composting a bunch of old things. It's a matter of getting a particular carbon print, but not. it's not even that simple. But part of it is you're burning, uh, say you want to, you and I, we're all gonna open up an apple orchard. I use that example. You would want a particular biochar with a certain kind of other woods or other biomass and they would burn that and create this carbon print that would be helpful and healthier for these trees that we're gonna grow. Or if we're gonna grow corn or if we're gonna grow wheat, there are different commercial biomasses that f fractionally um, mimic ancient biochar. And so the question is, no matter what, right now we're digging up Gobekli Tepe in Turkey for 44 years. It's 5% dug up and there are six other tepes. And everyone now knows it's becoming more well-known that they're, they're like 12. And when I started my research, they're, now it's scrubbed like the Mandela effect, but they had shown bio, uh, they had found carbon that had dated to 36,000 years old at Gobekli Tepe, but we're not looking at the general soil we find all over the earth. There is a soil chart and there are scientists that are like, wow, you know, it looks like fire. They're like admitting on some level that fire played a role in creation of this soil, but what they're not going out there and saying, because Gobekli Tepe resets modern, uh, you know, they're still struggling and saying Neolithic man, uh, in between all the hunting and gathering decided to build a megalithic structure and they just only party there when it was a, you know, a solstice or something. They're not, they're still not admitting that Gobekli Tepe represents one of many, many, many probably cities. And even though Robert Schock, Dr. Robert Schock and everyone else is looking at the Egyptian at the, at the weathering around the Sphinx, around the uh, different, um, you know, areas in Sacsayhuaman and Ollanta Tambo and Tiwanaku, they all show indications of much uh, further antiquity. And now, if you have a biochar that's on every continent, that shows it could have supported a much larger, not just for growing food, but for filtering heavy metals and and carbon dioxide. If we were a much more developed society, you, you, we have a problem. It's it's difficult. And from there four years later, here we are. And finally we're chatting on the obelisk. <clears throat> oh, the wonderful obelisk. So just to be clear, the biochar is different from vitrification or vitrified. Yeah. So, so it's, okay. yeah, it's not a combo of a bunch of dinosaurs are in the forest, a meteor hits. Oh crap. Everything burns and falls down and, and decays into a random pile that makes the perfect okay. growing soil. No, one, one of the indicators for later cultures that came along too is the existence within uh, these biochars of pottery mm -hmm. at all layers. And it can be a couple meters thick. It can be, uh, it could be 14 or 15 feet thick, 16 feet thick uh, versus uh, even three feet. So I don't, I shouldn't switch between meters and feet, but I thought that'd be funsy here <laughs> just for a minute. But yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. And that's, on its own, okay, well, that's one fact. But then I got fascinated by um, 
like uh, Michael Cremo's Forbidden Archaeology. And again, it's not his finds. It's 10 years of research mm -hmm. looking at paleoanthropological evidence of the minute we decided to take archaeology seriously and not just go dig up cool statues for your Victorian mantle, uh, they find that, okay, well, here's the red crag. Here is human fossils that are five, you know, actual anatomically correct humans. Well, this layer is 5 million years old. And then Table Mountain, uh, which is Cremo's favorite site, uh, that's in during the gold rush. They find fully intact humans that were not buried in situ that were through an intrusive burial through a layer of intact slate. But I, they were literally ancient. So we're talking about uh, 20 to 60 million year old humans. And then there are footprints and there are other things and not things that happen through, like you said, a quick bake of the soil, you know, it appears to be 150 million years old, but truly ancient antiquity of man itself, all the way back to the Klerksdorp spheres, which are in South Africa that are alleged, you know, from the layer of earth that they're found in these little spheres, they have machining around them. Even, even the television did stories on them in the nineties and the eight, late eighties, they are two and a half to three and a half billion years old. And that there gives us a really broad band to discuss stuff for the next, uh, how long you guys got? <laughs> 90 minutes. <laughs> so you were talking about, Hurry. you mentioned go back, Tepe. go back, Tepe. Um, up next. Did you hear there uh, that a monolith showed up there? One of those silver monoliths. Um, I didn't. Did they right at the site uh, nearby? I I read. Uh, Not that I'm putting any credence into that. I mean, I think it's all nonsense. Oh, I think I saw that. Yeah, I saw. I'm that. pretty that sure it's some kind last, of art. Yeah, the last sighting. The right? Last sighting. It's some kind of art project, but I thought it was funny. I, I thought it was funny too. I did. I thought it was what's funny about the one that finally made the news that was in the California desert mm -hmm. is that somebody wanted it to be news like four years ago. It was installed like four years ago. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's been there forever. They're like, I just picture it. They're like, no one liked it. <laughs> like, once they find it, they moved it. Right. They took it down. Yeah. <laughs> then they were like, screw you guys. I'm, I'm out. You know, you finally noticed, uh, they, there's an artist group in the Twin Cities that froze uh, a Neanderthal. Uh, they dressed up a mannequin and made it look very much like a realistic uh, Neanderthal and actually stuck it in a very popular Minneapolis park called Theo Worth. Mm -hmm. And then they gave, um, once you went out and found it, it, it it's a very beautiful park. It's uh, We have so many within the Twin Cities. But this one uh, has a matching partner. They froze a female partner to this Neanderthal. So you got this really, you know, gronk looking uh, uh, Neanderthal at one end of the park. And then everyone was supposed to meander around the park, of course, in the below zero weather now mm -hmm. and find the female companion that's also in a frozen block, fully <laughs> sized. <laughs> so that's a thing that's going on right now. So, I mean, it's one thing to find a metal monolith, but you go find a frozen Neanderthal somewhere in the forest. It's kind of like a scavenger hunt. Yeah. Uh, and that, I don't know if they're going to do that this year. You know, we used to have a Minnesota is pretty well known for their winter carnival and there's a winter medallion hunt. And uh, I don't know if they're doing that or not. Now that I think of it, but anyway, sorry. Anyway. That's no, no. I digress. It's all good. That was my question. <laughs> so, yeah, this is um, 
this has been really fun. We've uh, I've been looking forward to being on your show, so I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you. Because I, I love to talk about how it wasn't aliens. Yeah, that's so therein lies the issue as I'm going along and doing this research. Every now and then I would get dropped with this super sick feeling of this is not the first time we did this. Not because I had an intuition, but because as you look at the technology in the ground and look at the constant sighting of high-tech non-military UFOs, the assumption is always, well, they're UFOs. They're from somewhere else. Allegedly non-military. Right, right. And and there's the problem is that, you know, Olaf, uh, as my publisher, is he's a pretty great expert when it comes to stuff like this. And uh, he'll solidly say all day long that the U.S. and the uh, our space program is about 100 years beyond what we see, not, not 70 or 50, but over 100 years ahead of the technology we're currently in possession of. And I don't doubt that, but like the Tic Tac video um, of a fully, you know, something going off a weapon screen of an F-18 mm-hmm. at at least Mach 22 and doing the zero point turns and actively jamming, like the colonel said, who was flying of not giving away the technology, but saying that the maneuvers it was making and its ability to descramble uh, a weapons locking system irrelevant to being an active war was something that we didn't have technology that we could duplicate. And I don't think he was saying that as a misinformation campaign, but the, there are too many people with credible witnesses of events with UFOs where is it a, a foreign entity or is it the fact that once you table everything from engineered soil to polygonal cymatic masonry and abilities like in our genetics, it appears the short is, I think the whole premise of the book was that there's enough technology to say that these people had command of the atom. Uh, They had command of wave and frequency technology, irrelevant to moving giant blocks. They had engineered and terraformed the planet right down to the soil with piezoelectric properties for communication, not just for growing, but for um, connecting literally to through what we look at now as technologies are, are these computers. I think what we look at as nature, quite a bit of it is biotechnology that we don't understand. I mean, we discover three and a half to 5,000 creatures a year and have been doing it for 40 years. And, and that doesn't mean just funguses and bacteria, although it does, but it also means we missed something we thought was uh, extinct or we missed a bat or we missed a bird or we missed, we don't know everything that lives on this planet. And we thought Pando, that tree system in the United States was the biggest living organism. And it turns out that it's a fungus and it's a single entity and it's huge. And so for us to uh, assume that a spacecraft that, oh yeah, it's from another planet. And although I do agree that maybe anthropologically, Maybe we're an interesting subject for things throughout the galaxy to come and look at these monkeys. But at the same time, it appears based on the technology in the ground and based on all our myths and legends that at least 50,000 years ago, there was a global civilization. So not younger Dryas, but there was an event somewhere between 50 and 60,000 years ago that put a city off the coast of Cuba 2,300 feet deep. And it's not the only place that's off that far deep or like the recot or the eye of Africa, the recot structure, that's 7,800 feet above water, but it used to be in the water that 
that event, I think, is what ended a global advanced human society, but it didn't end them. And when they recollected or came out of hiding, uh, you have all these dynastic peoples like the Egyptians, the Aztecs, the Olmecs, the Toltecs, the Mayans, mm -hmm. uh, fill in the blank, maybe even the hairpin. Uh, and what we we very we have a very ignorant curtain on Eastern um we, we don't have a good marriage between our understanding of what happened from India to China and Indonesia. Yeah, we know about Angkor Wat, we, but there are megalithic structures in Japan and there are on mainland uh, China and that you know, we have unexplored pyramids, uh, rock cut ruins. Uh, Siberia has nano gold bits yep. and parts that have been found. All of it adds up to either, it's all military UFOs which is, I don't think, possible. And it's not a misinformation campaign, I think, for the Air Force and the Navy to come out and say, look, yeah, we've been, we'd like the public's help last summer and say, yeah, we've, we've had a program looking at these and we don't know what they all are and we'd like the public's help. And so the reality is that either they're from somewhere else or a very uh, smaller portion of a lost ancient human culture collected up their old technology, continued to call this place home, easily come and go and clearly can maneuver, jam, mute, uh, disappear from our eyesight. And there are plenty of places on this planet to live, whether it's underwater, uh, in rock cut underground areas, or even forests uh, that it would be very easy for a high tech society to live in. And when we see them, the first thing that people say is, well, look, they don't look like us. But again, if you command the atom and you command the human genome, you want to do zero point turns in a Mach 30 vehicle. Well, maybe being shorter, white and translucent with infrared black eyes that allow you to do a direct interface with your weapons controls and your flight system is an easier computation for the human body. So they just slip in and out of uh, a body the way that we would uh, wear a suit. And it's not that they're not human. It's not that they've evolved to be something other than human. They're just human. They're just, we go in for a nose job, they go in for a body mod that includes something that would work in that kind of machinery. And so when we see them, you got to think Rick and Morty going down to fix his battery and they got to put on little antenna because ooh, they're aliens. <laughs> to, to blend in, yes. Yeah. <laughs> With the, so, uh, what were those boxes we, called? We love Rick and Morty here. Uh, the, 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 the multiverse, miniverse, the miniverse, oh, your, microverse. Your it's your your microverse is whack. And it's the size of a lobster tank. <laughs> um, uh, that's it's uh, miniverse. You're, and you're saying miniverse. that I missed my dad's funeral. Uh, I I love that one for everyone listening. Rick and Morty's. Uh, uh, the grandfather has a spaceship that has a battery that's really an actual universe that he puts in to run his space car, which is gratuitous because these people live in this miniverse and they think it's real and it is real for them, but they stopped creating power for his car. And when Rick and Morty go in to check it out, uh, he has to give them antenna to put on his head so that they know that they're aliens, which is <laughs> hilarious. The and the episode and is think, called uh, the Ricks must be crazy. Oh my gosh, that is absolutely one of my favorite episodes. Um, it is painful to wait for seasons to come over. I know, Marty, but I heard they got they've got ten planned. Oh, don't tell me it's just so hard to Hallelujah. wait. Hallelujah! <laughs> yeah, there you go. Sing that one twice. Um, did your halo straighten out when you sung that out? 
It did. How'd you know? I don't know. I couldn't hear your tail tapping on the floor. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. This is why I'm not interjecting. I'm trying to allow this show to be serious because it goes sideways with us so fast. You know what's important? Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, Jerry, go for it. Jerry, please. (laughs) No, it's fascinating. I mean, what... Okay, so I'm not saying I... I can't can't accept what you're saying. I mean, that's totally plausible. But isn't it also possible that, or could it be possible that there are also some, okay, first of all, I want to say they could be in Antarctica, right? Could they be hanging out down there somewhere? Which would kind of account for all the weirdness going on down there. <clears throat> also, you know, they could be human, but they could live in possibly another dimension or phase shifted or such as too yeah. crazy. And just to tag team on what Jerry's saying, get into your thoughts on Antarctica, by the way. So I'm, I shouldn't entirely out Gary for this one, but the host of everything imaginable apparently is going to be interviewing a family relative of Admiral Byrd and it's, I think the first time anybody's really had new info or new insight on Admiral Byrd's um, uh, high jump, the operation that uh, uh, Olaf and I were just talking about this the other night on another show. And the issue is Admiral Byrd goes and it is pretty clear that the uh, German socialists left uh, with a lot of their technology and it very much appears that they flew directly from Germany with some in-flight refueling over Africa and a good segment of some very brilliant Germans uh, ended up in uh, Antarctica and established a base, which Operation High Jump in what, I think 47. 46 uh, and 47, yeah. Uh, which ended up with a, a large contingency for a uh, scientific expedition to go and just do scientific expeditionary work which which of course turned to what we know is a large battle which later was verified by remnants of things that were there and the question is was it just uh the german national socialists there or was it uh aliens and the admiral bird diary that indicates that there's a possibility that there was an entrance a cave entrance and also some um, um, descent into an ice, um, exp- uh, well, you know, cause there's kilometers of ice in Antarctica. And the issue is uh, there was a, it was a large opening, a bird and another compatriot uh, lower through it and see a number of different layers of things. And, and that was so, deep freeze, wasn't it? That was operation deep freeze. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there, there. And then of course we have this very, to to compound to compound this whole thing, we have Buzz Aldrin, uh, I believe Bill Clinton, uh, the John Kerry, and I think Barack Obama, and about six or seven, including I think a representative of the Holy Roman Church, all go to Antarctica within the, six weeks. And the Russian Orthodox leader. Yes, the head of the Roman Orthodox Church. They Ru- all go Russian. to Antarctica. Yeah, like, are they there just because they like to do Wim Hof and cold weather breathing? <laughs> it's, uh, it's just so weird. I mean, and Buzz Aldrin went down there. They, they, they summoned him down there, right? Right, yeah. And, and so why would you do that within one month if there isn't really exciting, untouched stuff? Because all this dynastic work in the last 
uh, there, here's why I jump back to 50 to 60,000 years. And you ask a really important question about what, why is it ancient advanced humans? Why, why is this? Because let's, well, we'll start with most current and go backwards. One is we have the sea kings, the, the, the maps of the sea kings, right? We have the P. Reese Reese map, which has become very famous for having the coastline of Antarctica in 1516. Admiral Reese, which is kind of like, as it was described to me by someone Turkish, a kind of a George Washington of, of Turkey. Admiral Reese is incredibly famous, but he's this admiral. And in the 50, early 1500s, 1400s, they're collecting old maps of old maps of old maps. And it, as a cartography goes, nobody wants to smash up the greatest spaceship on earth at the time, which is a ocean going, any kind of man of war and or shipping vessel. I mean, everything's done by sea. And so here's a map of the coast of Antarctica with no ice, which we can't verify until uh, American uh, retired and active air force and naval people take some interest and it gets deciphered. And then of course there's seism there's seismology that's done at least publicly we don't really get what Antarctica looks like till basically the 60s. And here we are with a map in 1516 that says, oh yeah, look, uh, this is a copy of a bunch of maps. And what a lot of people don't know is the P. Reese Reese map was a map of the world. It's a torn off section of that map. And what's also interesting about it, it has accurate uh, longitudinal, longitudinal lines, which would not be possible from the time that that map was published for 75-ish more years. And here we have either they got really lucky or they were copying things that had um, information on it, not just the coast of Antarctica, but the longitude being correct the way it was, was so significant on just this one. And there are many other maps that have these lost sciences and other things, for instance, uh, Sumeria gets credited with being the first modern culture, Sumer. And there are the Babylonian Plimpton tablet, which shows the Pythagorean theorem and all of it basically about a thousand years before Pythagoras gets credit. And, and, and it's essentially as they're describing it in a teacher's aid. And then there's another one, the YBC tablet, which shows a base 60 spherical form of math that would be really good. If you're a vibrational frequency, high technology society, and you work with Egan values, which is what, why is it that the Great Pyramid to ziggurats, things that were adapted dynastically, but uh, things that are much, and ziggurats, some of them are not old. You know, they were built in period in the time that we think by the Sumerians, uh, but they, but we have a lot of ancient buildings that use pi. Well, pi's most significant, I mean, one of the most significant things about it is it's an Egan value. You're using it for wave and frequency technology. And so all of these technologies, along with the maps, show that we have had a very advanced group of humans here. And that means that you can say, like you said, did they develop so far ahead? Like in a hundred something years, we've gone from zero to, you know, the technologies that we're literally communicating on right now. Is it possible for a prior ancient group of humans to, of course, go to nanotechnology, already have space and flight technology, already have either created or landed on the moon, traveled to other moons, established themselves on Mars, sent out satellites, 
uh, whether it's the Black Knight satellite or whether it is other. I, I, I got the opportunity to meet and speak with Eric Von Danigan a couple times, and he talked about at least six or nine other satellites beyond the Black Knight satellite that are known that are um, in our orbit that are ancient, that represent some other earthly ancient high technology. But let's just say that that doesn't account for that. We frequently will get excited or a news story that says, hey, we just got an FM signal to earth and alien signal to earth. Well, why, why isn't it a, we're growing bricks right now out of bacteria. We actually can grow bricks, their shapes, their geometry. And if you're going to travel to another galaxy or have, a, if, I, if I was a high-tech ancient human using 100% of my brain or 90 or 80, would I create a satellite that could self-regenerate, that could repair itself because it grows, because it's not just a box of metal, it's an organic structure that can also, like, we just found microorganisms that don't breathe oxygen that are actually non-oxygen-based life forms in the ocean, but could we create a brick that is part of a satellite system that uses solar uh, self um, a propel a propulsion system that would allow it to move through galaxies themselves and as it sends signals back, could we pick up those signals? Could we be picking up signals from a lost ancient human society that is not here to receive that technology anymore? But that's that's I guess a side note. Right now, those people. Why are they still here? Why are they still using what appears to be really advanced craft? What, what's, what's the possibility that they can either move dimensionally or through wormholes? Or to answer that question, we need to talk to them, which is annoying. And at the same time, uh, again, the jump, it's an easier, like the hundredth monkey theory. Why are there pyramids on every continent? It was, it's literally an easier jump to believe that through, although we do, I absolutely believe we have collective consciousness. Collective human consciousness is a real thing. I do believe that we have genetic memories and we have the ability to connect with each other and we're muted on it right now. We're kind of in a safe mode, but I do believe that collectively, is it possible that the um, that they reached a level of technology like in the singularity is near with Ray Kurzweil's work that on a nano level, they could replace a biologically failing, well, could they just repair any mitochondrial DNA? Yes. Could they live indefinitely? Likely. And were they uh, scavenging or a random creation of the planet? I don't think so. I, I think it looks very well designed. And as we look at all the pieces, it, it, it's pretty clear that a much more advanced human society didn't just figure out how to lift heavy stones. They were measuring and using these Egan values from not only earthquake control, but to cellular development and whatever they developed and however they mutated or changed themselves there. I, I don't believe that it's one happy go lucky society. I think whether they were hit by a natural disaster or a weaponized conflict, I, it really, I always say weaponized disaster as in it wasn't anybody's fault that they nuked themselves. But the reality is, is that they, it's clear that they didn't agree at some point about something. And we have these converging points where humanity has one mystery, like they've now identified in mainstream science. Oh, there's 14% of our DNA that we can't identify. And, uh, and, and approximately 50,000 years ago, Neanderthal and Denisovan uh, mixed with humans. But we also have the Prakus, which we started with, and the Prakus have elongated skulls, and they only have one suture line in their skull, that we're, and they have 
different foramen magnum, which means their art of their arterial dissections that go into their brain front that feed them are in different locations. Their neck is in a different location. Their body size is a different size and not a single institutionalized university that calls himself a university, despite soft tissue organics being found in mummies that are 3000 years old. I got to have that conversation with Nassim Harriman directly, personally, in person, and they're finding organic ocular tissue and brain matter uh, that's almost 3000 years old. But the point is these mummies are 9,000 years old and older and not a single academic institution is picking up and doing the ancient DNA sequencing because even from the shadow of the work that Brian Forrester gets credit for, no matter how the work was done. And I only say that because everyone's like, well, did he use a scientific method or how did he do it? It's irrelevant because his work is showing that these people are from at least Crimea, which is the black, you know, uh, basically middle uh, Russia, middle lower Russia, right? Uh, from Crimea, they left after something and said, I think they were the first Mennonite Quaker hippies that were like, everything we've done in technology sucks. Let's go get high, live on the beach and make really cool textiles and fish. That's how I think they ended up from Crimea to Peru. But the reality is that uh, those mummies, those bodies, those organics, they're not the only elongated skulled people on the planet. And it's up to us to do the testing, to do the very serious work that shows from the level of technology it would take to build polygonal construction, engineer soil, have these different genetic lines of humans. And the fact that we clearly have cities underwater, including Antarctica and the Arctic. And we know from the pole and magnetic shifting that that's, they just were tropical environments at one point. We know that the story of us is much more complex. And we have UFO sightings that people like to talk about, like the battle over Nuremberg in the 1500s uh, or 1600s. We, we have um, different sightings, not just today, but throughout time in history where we're either constantly like the Book of Enoch and Eric Von Danigan starting really this modern quest with Chariots of the Gods to say, look, we're either visited constantly or these large superstructures were built by a society that lived through multiple cataclysms, dealt with weaponized uh, attacks that with scalar weapons likely and other terrifying things. And they, at some point, failed to maintain a global society. They did fall. But I think that's a better place to start than uh, we can speculate, did they achieve multi-dimensional travel or nanotechnology to the point where their consciousness could be literally in dust. I, I mean, that's possible. And that the need for a body is irrelevant or that they live in either a multi-dimension or they live in a, a state of liquidity. That That's a possibility. We don't uh, have a really clear look at our, our we, we don't have a clear fossil record we don't have a remotely close to complete fossil record, but when it comes to the, the speculating on why Antarctica is a hotspot now, is it because of the continued, there's only one institution on this planet that has continuously in the last 2000 years collected, uh, at least at some level within a secret level of the levels, 
has collected information that doesn't jive with what they preach. And that's the Roman Catholic Church. There is only one institution and they are at the Vatican Library, the Vatican Sciences Division or whatever that looks like, whatever it is. The reality is, is that they have been collecting uh, ancient lost things for almost 2000 years. So what's there, what they have, at what point did modern governments get advanced enough to catch on? Uh, was it just organizations like the Masons? Was it other Illuminati or uh, other secret organizations that maybe grabbed one piece of the technology and they've, they've, they, uh, well, I'm losing my ability. Somebody help me. Ven Democrified? <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll go with that. That's darker. And I like that, Okay. that they, you know, they get one piece of the technology. They've made it into a secret. Um, it's something important to them, but that's all they got. They got the one piece. Right. Uh, Wim Hof is sharing the techniques to uh, control your inflammatory response, consciously control your immune system. And what he preaches, cause I got to see him in person is uh, this is an ability we've all forgotten. And yet Tibetan Tomo, is a system where you heat your body, but it's done in secret. It was a secret monk, secret thing that was done in a secret temple that was not meant to be shared. And that's an example of us mystifying, deifying, and having an ability that is actually helpful to every human being on the planet that wasn't brought to every human being on the planet for over 3,000 years. So I think that like Qigong is the mystification. I talk about Johnny Chong in my book and uh, that, you know, this is a guy that could start paper on fire, could send and direct electrical current. And then the, the British uh, filmographers that did go and document him, they, one of them actually came back and wrote a book about him, about Johnny Chong and Qigong manifests differently in different people. But in this particular guy's case, it had these crazy visual, like starting things on fire, massive electrical currents. And one of the theories was not just, okay, it's not a theory about Johnny, but there are very scientific papers about the uh, idea of nuclear cold fusion going on at, at the mitochondrial DNA. And that is very interesting because we don't really get how the human body works, let alone how it's connected to everything, why we have um, very different paranormal, some people call things paranormal, or we have uh, collective dream experiences. I mean, you have the Sufis. Um, having collective dream experiences with 35 people, or uh, there are books now current, like The Power of Eight. And you have everybody from the Greeks to Carl Jung looking at synesthesia, where you have every human ability connecting and we go, oh, that's a, that's a one-off or it's a mutation and about 25, 30% of us have that. And what does that really do other than say, when you table everything, when you start tabling all the missing facts, that instead of having facts you know, that fit your theory and throwing out the facts that don't, when you table all the facts, you have a very complex, high technology human society that could they have the ability to go interdimensionally? Sure. But are they still showing up and are we seeing them? Yes. So if we don't get a handle at, I mean, we're literally standing in front of massive complexes and we've done it now since the last fall, since the younger drives, we're staring at the great pyramid. We're staring at polygonal masonry across the earth, uh, not just built for earthquake, but for, uh, again, not just, we, we, we don't have a complete structure. We don't know if we're looking at foundations. We don't know if they're 
like the Easter Island heads. Mm-hmm. Some of the stuff at Sacse Waman and at Oyante Tambo and at these other locations like Lake Titicaca uh, at Tiwanaku are, you know, bowled over in mud. And we're not looking at the full breadth and length and size of the megalithic structures that have been built and saying, okay, this society is at what layer, you know, at how many times have they been dynastically quarried, used for people's towns and villages. Uh, Even the Egyptians were quarrying out the old uh, temples and ruins and right down to beyond the casing stones of the Egyptian pyramids. And then we have theories of geopolymers. And the reality is geopolymers exist in ancient times because if you're a society that's built these giant structures, you have to repair and maintain them. So we keep starting with a narrative of when did we know that they were built and that, well, maybe they use geopolymers. And then the creator of geopolymers, Dr. Joseph David Ovitz, identifies geopolymers on the Great Pyramid, which were then backed up by a Yale scientist and an Egyptologist that are like, well, they're not everywhere, but there are geopolymers. Well, again, if you're maintaining, I do restoration remodeling. When you maintain a building, you have to repair it. And if it's been around for multi-generations and eons, millennia, tens of thousands of years, it's going to need to be maintained. And the question is just whether, was it a dynastic repair or was it a more ancient repair? And and even that, uh, even the Sphinx enclosure, it the it the the repairs to that structure itself in dynastic Egyptian times, uh, when they were doing some early repairs, there's some black and white photos that now show up on. Um, uh, I got to give credits to it. Uh, Ancient architects. He he does a great new video. It's I, it's not even that long. You should watch it because they had pulled away some of the stones and it showed the same weathering that all these geologists are agreeing. It could be tens of thousands of years old, uh, the weathering around the enclosure, but the, the creature itself, the stone structure shows some of the same weathering under the dynastic repairs. And so does some of the weathering show up in uh, on the blocks around the great pyramid. And so we're really looking at in dating all of this and in looking at the antiquity of man, only your imagination could run wild with, when you start with, you have anatomically correct humans in the red crag, that makes them 5 million years old, anatomically correct. You have them at Table Mountain and you have them all around the world. You have a campfire site that Virginia Steen McIntyre in the 60s looked at in Weatlaco, Mexico for archeologists, hands down for sure, that site is 275,000 and a half million years old, for sure. And that means you have a human history that's either lineal and we are at the highest level of technology we are now, or uh, we are missing that chapter. And it, again, we just have to keep, we can keep cycling through the question and we should as to how many things do we table technologically externally and then internally, like what we think are just natural, interesting quirks of our genes and go, we seem like really badass superhuman machines. And we all have a hunch on it. We all have that, you know, that Graham Hancock says that amnesia. And yet we know there's something cool about each of us. We know there's something connective. We, you know, we keep identifying flashes of it. It's not just, you know, I reach this level of meditative understanding and then I go to the next level, I go to the next level and I maintain. I think each of us 
have either emergencies, you know, we hear about the, the car flips over and a small woman lifts the car up and saves her kid. And we think, oh, that's a one-off. Well, no, that's going from like zero to reactivating a, a, what would be a normal ability, maybe 50 or 80,000 years ago for an advanced human that's using a good portion of its brain. That was one of the abilities that would have had, and then they get turned on. And I think some people jump start it through ayahuasca or peyote. They jump, they, they quick fire. And I think that's another way people kind of jumpstart these dormant superhuman abilities, but they're not dormant for some class of advanced human that's still here, I think. Makes sense. Makes total sense to me. But <clears throat> I'm, I'm, I will speculate on this all night long, well beyond your 90 minutes. <laughs> we can... <laughs> what this... do you, Jared, what do you, so... I have two questions here. One is, and I'm trying not to monopolize because I have you, I get you when I want you. And uh, that's true for everyone listening. I know we're always dancing. So I wanted Jerry to get in, but uh, <laughs> don't worry about me. I, you can drive. No, 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 Jerry. I'm just going to just on what you're saying. So why do you think there's so much? Now, we've all speculated on why there's so much kickback because this is rewriting a lot of uh, history. It's literally rewriting it with science. And um, well, is it really rewriting it or is it just ignorance? Revealing it. It's revealing it. But that's my question is in this day and age, when everyone's on with their science meme, right? Why is this so threatening? And so that's where I'm trying to get at with this question. And secondly, don't you think they have probably messed with that gooey DNA already of the, the mummies that have been pulled up? You know, so there's, gosh, I want to take it in reverse almost, but the short answer on the front end for the um, why is, I equate it back to that Vegas conversation that I, I like to use this analogy because Vegas, Las Vegas did not want to teach people how to gamble for the longest time because it would mean that more people would cheat. They would lose more money. So freak economics of it in the early 2000s, they said, let's start teaching people how to play the games because people were scared. They didn't want to walk up and not know how to play roulette, not know how to play craps. It was just too complicated and busy. So freak economics of it was that when they started holding classes at the casinos and people learned how to gamble, people were more willing to gamble because they knew how to do it. And that made them comfortable. And before you knew it, Las Vegas got to make more money because people knew how to play. They just didn't know how. And, you know, and, and they changed their paradigm. Right now, universities have boxes and boxes and boxes like Raiders of the Lost Ark, where you got top men on the Ark working on it. Now, boxes of stuff. Universities, uh, the British and Smithsonian and every museum that's ever gotten anything ever, private collections, you name it. There are plenty of pieces we could look at and study, et cetera. But right now the idea was, is that if we admit after charging $250,000 for your degree, that we were entirely and completely and utterly wrong, which we are, and I mean, they are not even jazz handing past this bull, bull right now. It is uh, just a dusted house of cards. And what's happened is they have um, put entirely uh, their, their hubris on 
saying they were right. And not even everybody agreed. Like take Darwin. I mean, we can have a whole conversation about uh, it's 1859. It's not even a popular theory. And they, and they get behind it when, again, these sites are showing anatomically correct humans in, in morphology, the idea of we got really good. Like you can get, anybody can get, once you focus in on something, you can get really good at it. And just looking at a bone and saying, well, this bone is an ancient human. And and how do you know? Well, I'm looking at it and that's morphology. And this is the earliest forms of archeology span where I, you have to understand that their idea of trying to find buried graves was to stick a long rod with a hook on it and pound it through the dirt, earth, whatever. And if they, no matter what they crushed or broke through, if they pulled up a piece of fabric, they knew they were at a burial. That was archeology. span that's insane. And that's how they would identify. That's just one dumb thing about archaeology. But the reality is you work with what you got. And so there's a lot of layers of people who don't get out in the field. They don't do any work. They scratch each other's backs. They write work from a desk. They don't look at anything. They don't want to go explore. They don't want to get out. And their entire careers and grading millions of dollars of students loans on what they believe is based on this system, which jokingly is uh, archaeology's paradigm shift at the death, at the rate of the death of one archaeologist at a time. And that's, therein lies that answer is that it's, uh, I think, uh, by the way, despite everything I'm saying, I want to make it really clear that I think archaeologists need to be given boatloads of money and be paid to not find things. Because right now, I've heard too many stories now from uh, people in the field of if you don't find a fact that fits the theories, throw out the facts. So I have seen, um, it's not just Virginia Steam McIntyre and Waitlaco, North, North Mexico. It is many, many um, paleoanthropologists, anthropologists, archaeologists. If they don't find something that's going to fit or support a ridiculous, ludicrous theory of Victorian men from 150 years ago, they throw out the facts. And I, I, I am encouraging these uh, billion dollar institutions to embrace the facts that they have buried within their own Raiders of the Lost Ark storage systems and to be the university to say, you know, we're going to change our paradigm and we're going to pay the researchers to not find things we want, but find what's there, whatever it is, to actually say, we're the university that just opened up our vaults and found 50,000 facts that we didn't know we had. Uh, we have digitized our entire collection and we're looking for citizen scientists like Sarah Parkak's group with Global Explorer, where you have 80,000 plus people volunteering to look at archeological maps after she won the TED prize uh, about four years ago now, it's been three or four years, but she was using satellites, not LIDAR with just LIDAR flying in airplanes and ground LIDAR. She was using satellites to find ruins under the sand in Egypt and, and then Global Explorer came to be. And I do think that these institutions would experience a complete shift. And instead of being encouraged to be told, look, everyone's wrong about stuff. So I think that if they could get past the academic hubris and these individual egos and encourage uh, kind of a glassed off kind of a, 
you know, you know, instead of tabling the theories and become institutions that table the facts and let the theories come based on the tabled facts and let the debates, they would be more intense. They would be more fun. Hell, you could turn them into episodes for television shows. The amount of young minds and brilliant minds of all ages, truly brilliant, connected minds that could look at the facts that would be found would people would be banging on 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 these institutions doors uh, right now they're hooked in the holy mysticism of the archeo priests is what they're called by Carl oh, there's anyway the the point is that term. they yeah archeo priests mm -hmm. and and you know it's a whole system on of re, the religion of archaeology and mm -hmm. instead of that if they they would table these facts and just let the theories come there there'd be just crazy cool debates and we could actually answer some of these questions despite military and government interference the reality is that our society would move much further ahead if it wasn't a you know on a conspiracy side it would seem we're not going to let you guys see or put them together and we need you to keep having this central theory while you stand in front of a 747 and keep telling everyone it's not a 747 you know this this pyramid is a pyramid for a tomb it's not a but you're okay. So, so you're to control the public when there's a global narrative, you know? Uh, yeah. And, and so, you know, let the sheep keep grazing. And then, you know, the second part of the question, which I was all excited to start with, which was repeat the second question for me, just so I get it in order. Do you think that behind the scenes, they're actually working with this gooey DNA? Oh yeah, I do. Okay. So there we go. So I think it started with organizations like the Roman Catholic church where not everyone within any organization knows what's entirely going on. I don't believe that for a second. You got plenty of missionaries and plenty of stories of the conquistadors coming to South and Central America, melting, killing, destroying, taking what they wanted. And you have right alongside it, uh, Latin American inquisitions that were literally digging up the bones of people they believed that were Jewish. They had inquisitions and they dug up dead people to burn their bones because they weren't Christian. That's how zealot some of these people are. Doesn't represent all of them, but this is the organization that's boots on the ground collecting uh, any narrative, any written story, and it annihilated the Mayan and Aztec and the what we know of the Andes and of those cultures. And that's not the only place that that happened. It, it's, it's, it's an organized institutional elimination of compet of corporate competition in the most oh, imperialistic way. But I do think that there are higher ups in any organization or subsects that know what's going on. I think there's a reason when you're a Mason and I, I don't mean I know anything about Masonic law or, or Masons as in the organization, but when you're spending all your time working on brick and or a stone, and then you see the complexity of a polygonal wall in the temple of Delphi in Greece, in Rome, when you start to see things that don't add up uh, and then you go to Egypt and then you go around the world and you're seeing uh, that's why the Spanish tried to destroy you know, like Saxe Woman and uh, Cusco, they tried to destroy uh, any indication of anything other than their, what was supposed to be their superiority. And that's not what they were finding in these polygonal walls and constructions. I mean, they put whole churches on top of them. And so the, the, the idea then is they 
at some level, this is the only organization prior to organized modern governments that could have collected high ancient technology because we know they're using the maps, right? We know the Pires Reese map is being used. We know that they have accurate uh, longitudinal, longitudinal and meridian lines that are way beyond their capability. And they're, and they're having these, I mean, if they have it by 1516, that means they already had them off maps in the 1400s and prior. And there is no way anybody, the, the least amount of time you could be in Antarctica with no ice a, a kilometer or more deep would have been 8,000 years ago. And Doggerland, which we've chatted about in uh, from Ireland and Scotland all the way to mainland France, that was one giant area. And even 4,000 years ago, Doggerland had a lot of land on it, which wasn't just Doggerland. Uh, all around the world, I include a map in my book that includes all these places where there was significant amounts of land that were above water. So 8,000 years ago, post-Younger Dryas, so post what's called the biblical flood, you still got a significant amount of land masses that are around that are being occupied and looked at, but we have clandestine or, or secret organizations that are collecting and then doing something with what they're finding. And I do think by the time we hit World War II, we have modern governments that are aware of uh, these finds. I think that's an example of like we think of the Smithsonian and the ideas of giants and finding of the Phoenicians, Canaanites, Egyptians, uh, Romans, Celts, whatever, fill in the blank, uh, visitations, Vikings in America. I'm not very, I mean, I used to vacation where the Kensington ruin stone was found. And uh, that, that was, I mean, not on the farm for anyone being particular, but <laughs> nearby. Yeah. Nearby at one of the many lakes in Minnesota, mm -hmm. but the, uh, actually like Aaron and Moses, anyway, irrelevant, but that this, the idea that uh, one organization goes from collecting and hiding and burning and destroying, but also collecting and using and re-engineering mm -hmm. uh, this ancient technology, totally plausible because they were doing it right down to the maps and the math. But then governments at some point have to take over. When we're developing the hydrogen bomb, uh, when we're coming to modern governments and the technology digitally to, uh, communicate or figure things out. I do think based on what's been found from Russia to the United States to South America, that it's pretty clear that there's a reason Antarctica and, and the Arctic circle itself, because uh, we have stone spheres, you know, megalithic stone spheres mm -hmm. that go from the Arctic, you know, to the South. And that's part of that cymatic network. And Concretions. Yeah, yeah, that was a trendy volcano thing that we've discussed that <laughs> just for a while, volcanoes were putting out concretions that were hollow, made of, you know, uh, various composited materials, and then they just stopped making it, you know, volcanoes were like, we've done that for a few million years, let's do something else, like just puke up lava, and then we'll just not make concretions anymore, but uh, they'll be all over the earth in very odd places that there isn't volcanic activity that's also an odd one, mm -hmm. but okay. The blinky board. Yeah. Well, it can work. So what, um, what, what are your hypotheses on hypotheses on what caused the, the global catastrophe? So catastrophes, like the, I should say, I'm sure there were more than one. Yeah. So, and I've been trying to actually, this is a new, uh, dialogue. 
well, all of it's new. I think like we're saying, this is a new dialogue for everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, I do think the younger Dryas, the event that happened that we're calling the biblical flood, the event that's between 11 and a half and 13,000 years ago. Um, there, the so there's a bunch. One. Yeah. So we got, we got the, uh, the one that the Sumer discusses that all the, uh, uh, Joseph Campbell and the power of myth and general societal stories of a great flood, the great biblical flood, that, that is that younger Dryas effect between 11 and a half and 13,000 years ago. That appears to be either a meteor impact. Uh, uh, Robert Schock, one of Dr. Robert Schock's yep. one of his, one of the theories. Yeah. So there's a solar flare theory. Yep. Um, I've heard I recently about a uh, micronova, solar micronova, not a flare per se, but uh, a shedding of the shell of the sun in a micronova format. Interesting. My one of my favorites was recently hearing about planetary lightning mm -hmm. from Mars. That there was actual planet to planet electrical, like Mars walked across the shag rug and shocked Earth. Sure. Sort of. Sure. You know. Uh, <laughs> Groovy. Right. <laughs> Got you, bro. <laughs> um. So uh, take that, Venus. Oh, Zeus, they're fighting again. Um, sorry. So that that's uh, that. They're all possibilities. There's clearly uh, a lot of we're even okay. This will not make people incredibly happy, but I've seen some solid evidence now about what we're calling the glacial. Uh, there are glaciers. Glaciers are real but the extent of them, the height of them, and where they really rolled or didn't roll across our world and into the Americas, for instance, in particular into the Americas, I do think it may be a different program than what we were thinking. I don't know if the global ice map looked the way it really did, but were we impacted greatly? Yeah, because um, all the way, I know a good example is Egypt and Tanis, which used to be the capital of Egypt, or Kemet. And the Tanis was obliterated, and it, it appears to be a catastrophic event. It appears that, you know, and I have heard from geologists that vitrification through a high heat impact and cooling would cause vitrification. But it, it the personality of stone over 10, here's the thing, the antiquity, we can't, judge the age yes we have optical luminescence now osl but the there's a possibility that these ruins are so ancient that they could flake and what would appear on some of them to be vitrification are actually just the antiquity of the stone truly truly having laid there for tens of thousands of years in the sun in the rain in the snow in the sun in the rain etc and that that is a possibility but now, when it comes to disasters, like I said, we have a city off of Cuba that's 2,300 feet deep. We have the Recot structure, which is 7,800 feet above sea level. And we have Lake Titicaca at over 13,000 feet or 12,760 or something. It's way up there. But you have seahorses and salt water at Lake Titicaca. You have seawater at remnants of sea creatures at the Recot structure which looks absolutely identical to what was described as Atlantis, but let's just say it isn't, but it was at sea level. And then you have a city off of Cuba that's 2,300 feet deep that was above water. And again, it's not like they built it 50,000 years ago and went, oh yeah, we're, we're ready for this disaster now. Let's just, let's high five it and hit some high ground. And 
so and the Bimini Road. I mean, there's there's places all over the world, but let's just say that there's another society, a global society, that's building with pyramids and all the structures we see everywhere. And the dynastic Egyptians themselves, as another pointer, say we have a dynastic culture that goes back 36,000 years. That's what they told Solon, who went back to the Greeks, who because he was Greek. And he said, hey, I heard this story about uh, Atlantis. And I also, the, you know, the Egyptians are telling me they've had king, they have a king's list that goes back 36,000 years. And the Sumerians have a king list that goes back, they have a diluvian and pre-diluvian uh, king's list and they even say that on the king's list and there's not just one all of them pointing back to this one flood but what if they're not actually referring to the flood twelve thousand years ago or 13 or whatever what if they're referring to the one that actually ended the global society and what if that window is in that 50 to sixty thousand window and that includes the crater impact that's in greenland that one that's 19 miles in diameter that we recently found and now they're saying i think it's wishful okay we don't know. They we publicly find out about it at this point. What a year and a half ago, less than two years. Uh, that I, I feel like we're all in a time warp with the sci-fi novel we're in. <laughs> yes, it was last year. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, and so they they figure out. They say, look, the wall of fire that would have came from this. It was like 400 megaton bombs going mm-hmm. off. Uh, the wall of heat would have easily just decimated all sorts of stuff. And they and they're optimistically saying. Well, you know, it could have happened as early as 13,000 years ago, but it could also be 65 million years old. Well, like the like the dinosaur killer, the Yucatan P- Peninsula. Right. Uh, and then we rarely talk. I feel like even though it's known in geology and if you're into impact theory, we have that huge crater off the southern coast of India. No, you know, it's like just doesn't get the street cred that the rest of them get. And that one was one hell of a baby killer. That mm-hmm. that one was the one off of India is just insane big, just like the one. All of them are terrifying. Yucatan, Greenland and the one off of India, those three, not like there aren't others that are big, but these three alone, uh, each one is a nightmare and they hit the planet and it's clear uh, also, the other caveat is there are significant underground rock cut ruins, not not primitive people, not period people, but these are people that were clearly in the past over 10,000 years ago had used um, significant underground structures to prepare for uh, global and surface disasters. It's also shown in tunnels and rock cut ruins in the Andes mountains, it's, it's found in Turkey. It's all over Europe. There's connectivity there. there it's a whole uh, structured system meant for saving during a, you know, a, a, a structural hit of the planet on the surface. So not everybody would have made it depending on the impact point, but it's pretty clear that that was the case. So I do think it's not just the younger Dryas. I don't think it's just, although not getting a lot of street cred, this 50 to 60,000 or airplay, this disaster, I think that really ended the global disaster in that time frame, 50, 60,000 years ago, that really is the source point, I think, for a lot of this uh, uh, global polygonal construction that we find from Easter. It's on Easter Island, even, it's everywhere, including a stone sphere. That's the holiest thing on Easter Island, on Rapa Nui, is a stone sphere. That it's not the Moai, it's again the locals will point to a stone sphere that they have in a little corral and 
it's no different than the ones in Costa Rica or the Arctic Circle or in China, all over the earth, there's these stone spheres. But the, I, I think that if we were to look at the society and say, is it possible now in the echoes of truths of the Hindu Vedas, do, do we have flying machines, the Vermana? Do we have wars between the gods and what describes as nuclear disaster? I think we need to respect those texts as much as we do biblical texts or Western philosophies or research and really be serious about saying, look, it is very possible that the slivers of truths that we're seeing in these ancient writings are that at some point, ancient people pass down and remember uh, other more advanced humans fighting it out including flying cities or not, it is clearly accurate descriptions of technology. Uh, we have those cities being dug up in um, India that appear that it looks like shadows, but they look like they were nuclear. They look like they were nuclear vaporized people in ancient antiquity. So it's pretty clear that I think that we could credit natural disaster with some of it. And at the same time, it's very possible that it, it could have been a weaponized, uh, just let's go to town, let's party. And it just, it got out of hand. And it's, I think between the two, the, the recot structure, like Titicaca, the city off of Cuba, they point to some sort of crazy, dramatic hydrostatic plate shifting, you know, some tectonic, uh, there's a theory of that, you know, a lot of water in the ocean gets under the plates, eventually builds up in a steam situation, and that the plates, like one of the plates or a few of the plates just blew, and that the water um, shifted the steam, but in a nutshell, hydrostatic plate shifting. Mm -hmm. So that's that's a thing. And then could it have been the impacts of, could it have been a combo of the impact of these giant meteors? Could it have been something that flown by or something we got too close to or a gravitational shift? Uh, yeah, it could have been all that. I mean, geologically speaking in a few billion years, uh, what we think is not a fast magnetic pole shift or like the flash freezing of um, you know, woolly mammoths and the things that clearly show Antarctica being a tropical environment. Next thing you know, everything's frozen. It, it, it appears to some people, but that's a narrative, not a fact, but, but, but the, but the organics and the, it appears that they froze quickly, but I don't know if we even have the genetics down right enough to say, yeah, yeah, this thing flash froze. Is it, that it flash froze or did it fall down while it was winter? Did it, did, did the trees, did the, cause we have petrified forests in Antarctica. There mm -hmm. are petrified forests that are, that predate the dinosaurs, right? At least what we think when the dinosaurs were. <laughs> so, if, if you can trust carbon dating. Right. And, and therein lies the issue. Carbon dating keeps getting more complex. It's not mm -hmm. carbon 13. There's carbon 14. There's not just OSL dating, which can take a single granular crystal, almost nano size and get a date out of it. But then was it exposed to sun? Did it, are we compromised? Are we, right. like you said, I mean, I, there's so many different, um, we don't know anything about lichen and there is lichen and they're like, that's really old lichen. We, and it's even petrified lichen on top of, and then there's more lichen on top of the dead lichen. And it's like, how long is this piece of rock gotten lichen on it? There must be like a Rosetta stone one of these days that's going to show two blocks, you know, like at, like, like at Tiwanaku where one's face down and the back of it is weathered to shit. And then you flip it over and it's perfect. And one of these days we're going to figure out that if you combine 
two like likes with a certain kind of like I, all I can think of is that it would be a lichen issue with uh, the type of stone with some sort of splitting and growth rate of that creature. And somehow, somehow I feel like that's going to be able to be dateable. So that, that's me currently wishfully thinking for us to be able to date some of this stuff. That's interesting thought though. Combine the organic with the inorganic. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be one methodology. I, I think nanoarchaeology in the future is going to be huge. I think, you know, I watch them crush up roads and you go from a row to a bunch of chunks to them grinding it down to pebbles, to them dusting it to repurpose for new concrete roads. Mm -hmm. Well, right now we look at that and go, there's no way on earth in a million years we would ever be able to put that road back together. But uh, quantum supercomputers and nanobots measuring every side of what was crushed and connecting them all back together would be possible. Hmm. What would look like utter complete magic would be just simply a combination of taking a pile and saying, Hey, was, what was the structure mm -hmm. the last time it was put together? And I do think that with the amount of coring by dynastic peoples in the last few thousand years uh, combined also with, I mean, we have large, megalithic blocks that drive me nuts at like Oyante Tambo where, or, or at Tiwanaku where you have almost zero excavation going on where they're like, well, uh, there's nothing really below this one layer. Well, there's a giant hundred ton megalithic block sticking out of it. Maybe there's something under it. And, and if it fell down from something, perhaps we should dig a little like 50 feet that way. Or why is this all mud and not soil? What, where's the soil? What, what, what covered the structure? And, and that digging is not being done. So we have very practical methods right now available to us, literally common sense, uh, unlimited, uh, some institutional budgets. And all we have to do is drop some egos and, you know, boom goes the dynamite. We could be digging, but we need, we need a bunch be more funerals for that. I think. Uh, <laughs> that's uh, just kidding everyone just kidding <laughs> uh, but yeah there there was a i i talk about this in the book i went to a lecture while i was writing by dr melissa Sellu. yeah she's uh, uh originally got a degree from uh, McAllister college here in the twin cities but she also has degrees from harvard and other places and she's considered an expert in coptic christian and a whole bunch of other stuff and uh I had a friend study under her also and brilliant, brilliant, brilliant human being. But during the whole lecture was about antiquity theft and professional antiquity theft, including uh, she cited British museum examples and, you know, people going to Egypt and just hiding and carrying out um, very important papyrus, et cetera, and stuff like that. And I think it's really interesting that she did not out the professor, although they had died, but they had an original Dead Sea Scroll that they had on hand and kept in their personal drawer at their own personal amusement for approximately 40 years. Oh, and, and the point was, is that ethical or not? And she pointed out that a system that's in place academically now that says, well, look, you found something, you discovered it, you deserve the credit, which I do think there should be a fund for that. But her point was that the Dead Sea Scrolls were never supposed to be released to the public. That was done by a very brave person, kind of like an Edward Snowden sort of thing, where they released the Dead Sea Scrolls that were being backed up. They were supposed to be 
there was supposed to be a digital backup in California and it got released. And once it got released to the public, when you get citizen scientists and, and people who have hunches and general memories and can look at documents, so much more research was done when it was released. And there's an academic system now that says, look, you find, a, you find something, you can hold onto it for five years, but after that, you got to release it. But again, there's still the simple fact that whatever you found is literally the story of us. It's our history. It's all of our history. It's not any individual academic institution's story. It's our story. Now, it costs money to store the story. It costs money to maintain it and make sure it doesn't get destroyed. I think every institution needs to be paid. And on top of it, they're not in business to be a charity. Should they make a profit on that? That's up for debate as to how that profit should happen. But at the same time, uh, the research should be open to everyone that wants to research and question it. And that's a different animal, but it these examples I'm giving, I think it's important not only do we not let archeologists out in the field be forced to choose between the facts they find and the theories they're supposed to support, but I do think that we need to support um, finding uh, whatever it is, but tabling it for the whole world to see in a very reasonable amount of time. And I don't, I don't think five years is it, but you know, maybe that's up for another discussion. I don't know if you're, um, I like the lighting. How's that going? My lighting? Of course. Oh, there you go. No, I was, yeah. I was answering a chat. Sorry. No, that's so, cool. So Jared, with this, with all this and the need to uh, switch, the need to break through and let the old guard die off and hopefully the new the new people coming forward can break through the barrier that has kept us bound to uh, these old theories, these Victorian theories and the money that's tied into making sure those theories stay as facts in the field that are being taught to people. Um, so with the idea of that kind of paradigm shift happening and hopefully it does uh how do you think society in general because i think some of this outside of social engineering is what some of these people have put forward is this is a great threat to say religion right yeah it threatens the idea of of god or uh it threatens the, which is of course, one of the hands of control here. And so you start looking at the Paracas stuff, you start creating the narrative with these old bones and then this really intelligent tech that is, and also the age difference in which we've been told for so long, how far back it goes, the level of this tech that you always call what we're working with the blinky board because yeah you know so i guess that's what i'm saying is there what has been used so often is that the general masses aren't ready for this kind of revealing um oh my god are you texting no uh, <laughs> the the adventure well what are you doing right now <laughs> I'm, I was, I was twiddling and talking to you, darling. <laughs> um, I, I wasn't. I, I actually was flipping through a, 
Well, it's besides the point. Um, I got Weeble Wobbles to bid on. I'm on my eBay. And they don't fall down. Uh, they don't. That's another reason to collect them all. Mm -hmm. um, uh, no, oh, it's... Lord. Uh, so it's a it's a, such a crazy question to skirt around because that's how we have to do it. There are people out there, they're trying to live their lives. They're looking for answers. They're hardworking. They are not trying to figure out the meaning of the universe. And they're good if they're, they're good if they don't know all the facts. They have a, a religious faith, not a, not Christian, not Hindu, not Buddhist. I mean, I'm not talking any particular system, but the issue is people here. Well, I, I would argue that we, we, the elephant in the room is that our entire academic institutions in the West have been Christian based. And there's a, there's a church on a, almost every university and college campus, multiples. And, and some, of course, some obviously higher places of education are literally based on some particular branches of Christian faith. So the, the, they absolutely, there's a marriage at these campuses of religious beliefs. However, you have a lot of people who don't believe in religion, but they're tied to the institutions. And then they're tied to the academic model of out of Africa, Garden of Eden, same thing. We're okay. We can live with you not believing because you still believe in out of Africa. So I think that's one of the elementary anchors that is shows a very sly but a marriage of agreement versus table all the facts, table all the genetic histories, table what we know. And, and we are, I'm just starting to hear some of the narrative shift on, well, you know, there are reasons because of Neanderthal, Denisovan, and genetic lines that they considered, well, everything came out of Africa. And, but again, heavily, this is based on the theory of the Garden of Eden, that biblically speaking, that the Garden of Eden must have been around the Tigris and it must have happened basically, you know, in that area in, in Africa. And that if, well, that's not true. Well, the sliver of truth is that it was still out of Africa. And so uh, now there are creationists, not speaking for them at all, but there is this uh, drive to identify that human beings have always been here. The, it, so there, there are people who are not literalists Okay, so there are literalists who actually believe the earth is only six or 10,000 years old. That it started, yeah, so they believe that it's six or 10,000 years old. And that, flat. unfortunately, yeah, yeah, there's that. But remember, <laughs> cats would have pushed everything already off. Correct. Everything. Yes. So there would be nothing left on the planet if it, if it was flat, because all the big kitties would have rolled it all off. And that's true. So, so we have religion that is saying, okay, well, uh, if we can prove that humanity was always here, then we're basically proving Adam and Eve that in the beginning, there were only two people and that we can prove this allegorical story for some to be literal truth that even if the earth is four and a half billion years old, by proving that the Klerksdorp spheres are real, that they are man-made and they are three and a half billion years old, it shows that Adam and Eve were playing some really badass ancient golf or something. And they've clearly been humans here from the beginning. So on one hand, you have this uh, creationist group that's willing to say, okay, well, or like uh, uh, there's a book by a very famous professor called the science of God. And I'm blanking on his name right now, but the whole idea was uh, again, taking the allegory story of, you know, everything was created in seven days, 
but when you look at quantum mechanics and you look at uh, the descriptions that they're using is time stretched. Uh, it was stretched out and that is exactly string theory, quantum mechanics. And that is very easy to show the shape of everything falling within seven days based on this quantum mechanics of the stretching of the universe and the stretching of time. But there's a whole book on it called again, the science of God. And it's all about explaining how that would all work. But so there, there's this group that says, yeah, uh, we, we are going to continue to put our foot down and marry uh, our Western belief, Christian belief system and say, the earth will conform to this book, which is not a book. It is a collection of things. If you want to look it up, the Eloist, the Yahwehist, the Deuteronomist, the Q source, uh, the two source theory. Uh, there, there is like a whole bunch of things, not to mention the Gnostic text, the book of Enoch, which shows space travel. And I, there, there are so many things to look up if you want to go down that rabbit hole. But for us, the point is, is that it has a great amount of fear for people who only want to understand why grandma's dead and where is grandma. And, <laughs> and, and, and people need to know where Fido went and the kitty. And that's, those are comforting things. And it's not that we all don't want those answers, but those that want the uh, religious answers, the religious answers don't come with the narratives that we're talking about. They're uncomfortable for some people and that's okay. It doesn't need to change your belief system. It doesn't need to change your faith but your religion and the legalism of it and the way it's written might have to change. And it's also going to have to involve a bigger education to why you believe what you believe. And, and you need to understand the Septuagints. You need to understand the council. You need to understand what uh, the emperor was sitting down to do with the Roman, um, uh, the empire and creating a state religion, just like, you know, the King James Bible was, literally written to define the divine right of Kings there there. I mean, that's just scratching the surface of the whole subject on even whether you're talking King James or the origin of all this, but I'm saying things that people, Eloist, Yahwehist, uh, the Q source, two source theory. I mean, you got to go down these rabbit holes to understand what you're talking about and then understand the Gnostic texts and a million other things that we're finding, including the legitimate, the, the, the legitimate verification of the book of Judah, we're talking about yes. new, new information that that should make people uncomfortable. And it's not, it's, it's okay to not want, you just have to be able to table facts. It doesn't matter if it fits into your faith. It, they're just facts. And it doesn't need to be a fact that disproves your faith. They are two separate things. You don't have to change who you pray to, how you pray, because the facts in the ground show humanity here uh, in Mexico 275 to half million years ago, or because it shows anatomically correct humans two or five or 60 or 150 million years ago, it doesn't need to do that. And again, for some people, it might say, well, yes, uh, we were here because we were always here in the beginning and this just proves the point. So for some people that's okay, but there are other people who are just making it difficult, which is fine as long as you have your opinion, but don't burn the facts. They'll let everyone look at the facts and it, you believe what you want, but don't um, uh, shut the room out, you know, shut, lock the door and turn the lights out in the room with all the facts. You know, you can, 
you can just, it, we just got to look at it, folks. It's just, it's a hard subject for, there's no going around it. I'm, I guess I want to say this in a more apologetic way, but there's no going around looking at the actual information that's in front of us and being also more informed and realistic about um, understanding that your religious system and the legalism of it is different than your faith. And on top of it, I've said this from the beginning that collectively all of humanity, that there is a collective human consciousness and it's not some mechanical, just a mechanical backup for all of us. I, I do think for what we understand it, that blinky board analogy is that it isn't just a um, connective uh, backup mechanical keep track of everybody system. I do think that this terraformed planet and the way that we connect outside of just humanity, but to all living things, we are literally based in wave and frequency and magnetics. It's not, not woo woo. I'm talking the, the physical mechanics of the universe we live in. It, it is a magnetic frequency, you know, wave, you know, dielectric. It's all the same thing. It's one uh, energy. We are energy-based beings that have a collective consciousness that do connect outside of the human race to uh, other living things. This is not, um, whether it was engineered or not, I do believe that it is something that we need to invest in. And, and if that's through prayer or meditation, it's incredibly important that people continue to do that work, uh, experiment personally with movement and breathing and continue to connect to that uh, true real layer of us. But I do think that it needs to come with some responsibility when, when you do find things and you're troubled by it. I don't think you should turn from the facts or deny them or burn people to stake. Well said. Was it uh, Gerald Schroeder, Science of God? Is that his name? That sounds right. The, the Science of God, Yeah. Okay. right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I haven't looked at that in a long time, but that's, that's my idea of fun. Like sure. a long time ago, I'm like, Oh, ah, uh, strength theory. Uh, what? Oh, stretching the stretching of time. Yeah. Oh, that sounds interesting. And next thing I know, I'm going from in search of Schrodinger's cat to reading that. <laughs> and then doing double slit experiments in your house. Right. Uh, yeah. Which I think <laughs> I am super, super huge fan of Ken Wheeler. And yes, me too. Uh, yeah, so his work on the cult of bumping particles and uh, <laughs> the fuzzy haired crackpot. <laughs> yes, yes, fuzzy haired crackpot, Einsteinian, you know, I, yeah, that to actually uh, and vibrational medicine. Uh, I've been really trying to get, I couldn't include all of it in my book or to really say, okay, here's all the ways that we really were. Here's a bunch of facts about structured water and consciousness and how we all really connect. And here's some examples of how we're writing on DNA and, and writing books and passing down memories and trying to tackle all these subjects, which is why I've, I've decided to move ahead and just, I need a complimentary edition. I had already outlined my next book because I was in South Africa for a month in January and last, just last January, not, not uh, three weeks ago, but last year. And I had outlined the next book right prior to the publication of this one. And I knew that we were going to have to get into these underground rock cut ruins. We were going to have to expand on the sciences of polygonal masonry and engineered soil. And we need to squirm a little more about all academic sciences that 
there's clearly a vaster human population just based on the LIDAR scans in Guatemala and them going, well, look, we think there's at least 15 to 20 million people that lived in South America now, not the 5 million busy beavers that came across the Bering Land Bridge and built every South American, Central American, and North American structure since Younger Dryas that, you know, that, that archaeologists are now looking at just Guatemala in Central America in 800 square miles. They've been able to say, based on lighter scans, we've grossly underestimated the human population. We need to stop looking at South America as if it's where uh, civilization went to die, but it's a place where civilizations were born. And there's a lot of truth in that because the father of South American archaeology, there, there were theories that the Garden of Eden was actually in South America, that it, it wasn't Africa at all, that the origins of our society, that's a whole nother topic. But the idea was that there's a good possibility that humanity did not sprout over there, it sprouted here. But again, we're looking at the snapshot of our landmass now. We have millions of square miles under underwater. And 50,000 years ago, the world looked very different. We we're on very different coastlines. So I, I think it's really bad to say that we're looking at the stage of the entire play we were watching. But as far as South America goes, it it is now with LIDAR showing that if you can go from 6 million people in totality in a theoretical, this is what was in South America, to saying, no, we're looking at 15 to 20 million people just of what we're finding in Guatemala. Well, what are we really saying? I mean, aren't we talking about billions of people when you look at what's being found in LIDAR now, just in Guatemala is going to expand. And I think the, the true ancient post younger Dryas worlds, the, just the dynastic peoples, dynastic peoples being people that occupied ancient advanced ruins post younger Dryas or post whatever catastrophe happened 50, 60,000 years ago, that these sites were occupied by tribes or survivors that literally picked up vitrified, broken, shattered societies and mimicked and rebuilt and stacked and mud bricked in where they couldn't cut or move basalt and andesites and granites and of, of all kinds. They rebuilt temples and pyramids and they occupied these sites and they've done it as best they could. But these are clearly sites with super highways and freeways and roads. And what we're seeing in LIDAR, I think, is going to ultimately reveal reveal that we're talking about hundreds or, again, millions to billions of people that if we start now calculating, and not that they used all the engineered soil for um, just doing, um, growing food, but again, for filtering heavy metals and carbon dioxide and piezoelectric properties like the Nazca lines or the Jordan Nazca lines or the Bolivian Nazca lines, that this is a society that was global and well-connected. And quite frankly, I mean, maritime underwater archaeology is going to give us even more. And it, it really is going to be a very, very, very different picture of our ancient past. I don't think we really realize what, well, I think there's a lot of examples now that show how quickly we're ready to believe in mysticism and magical crap and ignore science because apparently we've forgotten how. Because <laughs> they're called experimental gene therapy of vaccine. Um, there's that. And, you know, when you can tell people, I just can't stop coding idiocracy. It's like, it's got yes. electrolytes. <laughs> because it's, it's got what plants need. It's got so what it's plants like, crave. 
Yes. Yes. <laughs> that's it. Yes. And, and that's the problem. It's like, I live in the city where 3M is. I live in the city where if you need to filter a particulate of a particular size and you need to stay safe, uh, OSHA, uh, the EPA, it's all very well established. It's mm -hmm. not a new, it's not up for debate. It's no. not a new science. No. Wait, you mean 3M doesn't stand for three masks? <laughs> <laughs> um, That's excellent. At three random masks. It's like this little mask, you know, it's like, is it the house? Is it the mask made of straw? Is it the house made of wood? Is it the mask made of brick? None of which will filter what you need. But it's got electrolytes. It's got what masks crave. Yes, but what are electrolytes? I just watched right. that movie like two days ago. It's, uh, it's so, you got to mix that with V for Vendetta and then you're all set. You're all set, right, exactly. I hope you're not on YouTube because I think we just said like 18 bannable things. I know we are, this is YouTube. We are on YouTube and I don't give a I shit. Am so, I am no, so, oh good. I'm yeah. so sorry. We believe everything the government tells us. <laughs> okay now we're so, doing the, the they live thing so you listen you you follow ken wheeler do you follow crows triple seven uh i have i have in the no in the past not currently. okay yes he had a frequency healer on recently you mentioned frequency healing and i was wondering i can't remember her name and i apologize and i'll look it up and send it to you but someone you might want to have on your show she's really interesting she heals oh, yeah. people sounds great through their aura, if you will, with tuning forks. Totally, totally possible. I, I do think that we're, we're reactivating these different abilities, different ways, and it's working and we need to look at all of those. I mean, vibrational medicine should not be a new frontier. It's something we've been aware of for, yeah. you know, there's been solid information and books about it for the last, you know, it, yeah. So homeopathic medicine, I mean, that German scientist gets into it, the like cures like program in the late 1700s and then yeah, yeah that's just a fraction of vibrational medicine and it's crazy that homeopathic medicine gets stronger as you dilute the medicine or dilute the essential oil or whatever you're using and the whole theory of vibrational uh the vibrational energy of the plant is being diluted to then uh, create a cure where it occurs to me that if you are connected to the soil and you're fully conscious being and you could connect vibrationally more consciously uh, to then, uh, again, there's something weird about the placebo, the mind effect. And I think what it is, is if we could connect again with the frequencies of these plants or things that cure us when we crush and destroy them and dilute them, that in the past, we were actually conscious of that connection and we could use that vibrational information without destroying the plant. That's, of course, I'm digressing. So- I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. So that's digress away. Well, well, I, I have I, another, Jared, I had another question kind of springboarding off all this that you had really, the show kind of was revolving around. And it was, if so, if we look at our bodies as bioengineered, right? Yep. Like we're looking at Terra Preta. Uh-huh. I'm listening. Oh, you're trying to hypnotize me now. <laughs> <laughs> squirrel jared murphy jared murphy jared murphy uh, it's, uh, it's a dome of gold i love those by the way anyway so quit with that with your witchery uh, how do you know she's a witch 
<laughs> she burns. She weighs more than a duck. <laughs> what else floats? <laughs> Monty Python is so good. Um, okay, so if we think about our the bio bodies, it bioengineered. These are suits, or they could be. They you, you could actually make a case. I think with the way our uh, our bio suits are working and housing us with the idea of bio ships, right? I mean, people are talking about this. And when we look back at the ideas that you brought forward in your book and other people are bringing forward with Terra Preta and all this kind of stuff, there is something that starts to come together for me in the idea that there we're, we know that, okay, so I'm jumping to the spiritual. We know that there's more to us than these bodies, right? Because we dream. We have points of consciousness that happen outside of the body, or at least in theory, outside of the body. You can get non-local with stuff. Is there to you a connection between these two, between the idea of Terra Preta is just an example, just jumping off of, and when we look at our bioorganics that we're walking around in? Yeah, so we know, we know that there's an exchange of energy when we walk barefoot anywhere on the planet. And I don't think that that's... I don't think it's like going back Ken Wheeler and thinking everything is connected, dielectric, you know, magnetic, you know, it's all the same thing and that it's all uh, one giant system and saying, well, of course there's a reaction as you put two magnets together, there's a reaction uh, one way or the other, you know, but I think that the, in the structure of the human body, whether it's a vi and, and viruses and funguses and plants and the soil and animals, I think that the sliver of truth, for instance, in the Bible on, you know, we used to be friends and talk to animals. I think that's a true statement. I think that was a thing. And then the flood happens and you literally have, you know, prior to the flood, it's, you know, the baby will lay on the snake mound and the cobra won't bite and the, you know, everything is everybody's buddies. And then post flood, it's, it's a free for all eat everybody, you know? And I think that the, the technology that again, we're, we get mystical about it. We don't understand why we have a reaction from the blinky board that is actually the control panel to a 747, but we've been banging on it for a thousand years and then go, you know, well, it blinks orange or red, uh, but, but it's a 747 and that's a control panel. And it's a plane and it flies. And I think that's how we've related spiritually to ourselves where we say, well, there's ghosts. Well, is that a ghost of something uh, or is it really an unresolved manifestation externally in the collective consciousness of the conflict you're trying to resolve that is a truly complex or passionate uh, or violent or some truly frustrating situation that you have accidentally banged on a very complex biological engineered system and you've manifested this externally in what appears to be paranormal or a ghost as an example, or if you're, um, again, looking at how uh, do we body or disembody uh, 
there is something for computer geeks out there, like a raid array of disks where what we, what we figured out mathematically is if you have a five disk hard drive and you have a software system that basically records to all this hard drives. And if you lose one or two, it it's, you're going to make it. You can actually, the theory is that all the disk, the disk arrays are redundant to each other. And by copying the code a particular way of any program of any particular document, you are saving as a backup system through the this disk array in your operating system, you're basically able to to lose a physical hard drive or two and be able to recreate your information without losing all your information. It's a way to create a backup. And so it's really one plus zero, right? Right. So you only do that with humans now. Well and isn't that what like the the basics of holography? Uh I haven't heard the word holograms that oh yeah so like burr's work and uh you have these uh um the Karelian photography of your aura and also of you know they're doing this work where they photograph a leaf with a hole in it and they get an image of the leaf uh with a hole in it and another hole in it with another leaf and it literally repeats itself because um it, it's crazy this uh vibrational energy pattern of uh, whether it's an unfertilized egg or a seed, it looks like a fully grown, whatever it's supposed to be. Magnetically, it has the same signature. That reminds me of, uh, I think it was an experiment where they, sh they shined the light of, oh, I forget now. They, they shined light through like a lizard into a, a chicken egg and a lizard grew in the egg, something like that. Where they yeah, somehow I, could project the genetics through light into an embryo. I think that's Burr's work in the 1940s. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of the next one besides the Karelian photography. There was another uh, uh, Romanian that was doing the same work with the, with the, with the hole in the leaf. And okay. the same magnetic patterns were showing up. And I'm, I can't believe I'm blanking out right now. But I think it's because I'm... Um, thinking of that last thought, just on the idea that in that rate array, I just, I don't want to leave people hanging on this one. Cause I'm basically saying that the theories of uh, reincarnation, I, I do think it's quite possible that being each other's backups, that that rate array is at no point, are you collectively not recreatable? that through a collective consciousness, I mean, one of the possible theories is right down to uh, organics in the ground that we can carry the code system over for you sure. or me. Sure. And so, you know, I, I think the frequent example for that was just that in the past, you know, people will always be Cleopatra. They're never like Bill the zookeeper <laughs> who picked up crap at the Roman <laughs> zoo. They're never that guy. Right, right, right. Yeah, and, and and so maybe it's because people are fascinated with these leaders or the past. They they do over-focus, and they ultimately do tap into that consciousness or that memory, and they go, I was that person. And in reality, they're just tapping into that actual person who's not back on the grit. They're not back on the living grit. There is a total collective memory. Like right now, uh, Harvard, you know, they encoded a book in 2008, and now they can, you can encode over a terabyte in a gram of DNA. And again, basically everything humans know, everything we know can be 
basically included in two giant elephants. And those elephants are still elephants. They're still going out and I'm hungry. I'm going to eat from a tree, but I also know nuclear physics and I'm going to make a quantum jump machine, but not after breakfast. Um, and so we could uh, conceivably figure that at 8 billion people plus living organisms and or uh, these fungal bacterial, these living organic networks, there's a possibility that when you have a, you have a religion that again, slivers of truths, you have something like, um, okay, uh, you are reincarnated and you might be a fly or you might be this, or you might be that. Uh, the, the, the sliver of truth in it, like the idea of the arc, the theory that maybe the arc was actually genetic, that it wasn't an actual two by two, irrelevant to proving that you could do it, except for the, the far side, Gary, you know, Larson cartoon of the dinosaurs missing the boat, you know, and the idea that it was a genetic arc is a possibility, but that people are thinking along the right lines. The idea now is that what if the raid array is that collective human consciousness and by carrying over each human uh, over a large um, course of organic material and, and what's literally in the air and, and all of us, that there is a possibility that you get spun back up uh, through, uh, it's not gonna, we're not gonna, I'd hate to call it reincarnation. Is it a possibility that, are, are we creating new people or are we recreating a pre-existing society? Are we rebooting someone that is down or are we just in constant save mode? Which is why so much of our RAM and memory has been put to saving people that have passed that that's why we're down to 10 to 15% consciousness because what we're identifying as junk genes are really the rate array that's been building up for literally hundreds of thousands of years. And we've been zipping and compacting uh, everyone. The, anyway, it's just a theory. It's just a, that's I wanted to. That's juicy. That's like juicy. That. And yeah. I, I, would, I would put it to you that it's stored in the ether. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because I know that's a big, why have we gotten away from just studying the ether, science around ether, uh, calling it the ether. Um, it's, it's, I, I do think it's pretty brilliant. I, I'm, I'm hoping Ken Wheeler can uh, break through that one. <laughs> uh, yeah, that and uh, get some uh, one, two, three. Gosh, it took me hours to, I'm not saying I'm a, an idiot, but it took me a long time to decide how brilliant and his work is as incredible as it is. Mm -hmm. It took me a long time to truly understand it. And I built one of his uh, magnetic viewers. How's that? How, how, uh, is it cool? It's very cool. It's very cool. Oh, uh, that's so neat. Do, do you do any videos of it? No, no, I can't. Oh, gosh, that's it's, it's put away now, but I mean, I could make some, I, he makes them. I don't need to make them. Oh, but it's so cool that you actually did it because I've, looked at what he's done and I'm like, oh, and then the experimentation with the, again, same deal. We've, we know that if we expose to like the, ah, uh, yeah. So the experiments with um, plants exposures to healers, what is the magnetic currents and frequencies happening that uh, healers, you know, they were doing experiments as to can healers actually heal and why does it work and, and magnetic exposures to uh, un, you know, unsprouted seeds and, how do plants grow and, and how does all that magnetic uh, frequency stuff works? And I'm a big fan of aeroponics mm -hmm. and growing with uh, as many nutrients as you can inject into a uh, um, plant 
to grow it into its most nutritional value? Uh, how does that affect your positive gene expression? I mean, there's a, there's a lot to all this. No, nobody wants to be sick. Nobody wants to, you know, that we, it's so bizarre. We have this disconnect with food where, you know, if you own a Ferrari, you never put gas in the oil well or oil in the radiator fluid or radiator fluid in the wiper fluid. You would just not do that to your Ferrari yet once a week, once a day, because you deserve it, you'll walk out and hit that Ferrari with a sledgehammer. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's how we treat the human body. It's like, well, am I hitting it on the hood today or right on the engine block? <laughs> and I deserve it. it it's, I'm, I'm going to live my life and I deserve to hit that Ferrari. Well, mostly you want to drive the Ferrari and look like you're in the Ferrari and, and have fun with the Ferrari for its design purposes. Yet, uh, we have this huge disconnect uh, in this broken time frame where we look at food as a not just a comfort, but you know we're concerned with how it tastes, not where's my gene expression for the very day, and when do I need to eat, drink, what are the nutrients, electro electrolytes, what are the things that my body actually craves, and is it coffee with you at 8 a.m. or 7 a.m.? with heavy cream, or is it actually what appears to taste like that? But based on a quick scan at the future cafe, it's actually containing some repair nanobots, working on some mitochondria uh, reprogramming that seems to be a, a, you know, a wire with uh, maybe some cancer forming. And also you're gonna mm, go work out. Those telomeres, baby. And uh, when you talk like that, <laughs> I just want to go shop at an organic market and put my hand through my Euro mullet and talk and sociology. Drink, at, drink I think mine are growing. All right. Right now. Those tips are getting better. <laughs> my dendrites <laughs> are getting brushier. Uh, that's, that's it. I got some questions um, from the peanut gallery for you. Oh, wait, do they like being called the peanut gallery? Yes. Do we put on Charlie Brown music now? Can we do the dance? Yeah. So, I don't quite understand the question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Two trains leave a station, one from Coopersville <laughs> at 60 miles an hour. I hate those questions. You have one bucket with five gallons, oh. another bucket with three gallons. How many buckets do you have? No. Um, yes. <laughs> Electrolytes. <laughs> do you think that Antiquitech architecture and artifacts are functional or potentially so? So like uh, the idea of uh, smart, smart buildings, like these high courts and uh, keystone connected buildings, like actually having like communication qualities and stuff like that. I have no idea what he means. Well, I think, I think that's something that, you know, haven't talked about it yet or what we're doing, but for sure that you have a structure, um, these polygonal structures, it's like, oh yeah, they, they worked with earthquakes, but that's not, it's not just that simple. We have keystone cuts, which are metal connecting points between blocks that are 100, 800 tons, 50 tons, whatever. There's no need for it. They're not going to go anywhere. You can't put a credit card between them. You can't put a pin. So why, why do this? And then deep into the soil, one of the things that I'm advocating is to test the core. Cause when we build a modern building, we don't dig you know, like in Minnesota, we have a frost footing. So all of our footings for buildings are four feet mm -hmm. or they go deeper, in which case we pre-compact the soil, the mud, the clay, whatever the hell it is. And then we put some class five and we compact that down. And then we have a couple layers and then we build a foundation. And then a hundred years later, it's like literally lopsided. 
Yet here are, even for dynastic periods, polygonal buildings that are sitting uh, literally millions of pounds are sitting on some of its bedrock, but some of it's foundational. The question is, or is it really rock or have they pre-compacted soils to either 100% or more? Have they used geopolymers? Have they used multiple layers, just like they brought uh, granites or stones from thousands or hundreds or uh, two miles below and 75 miles over, depending on the site, whether it's in the Andes or whether it's Egypt and Aswan Quarry? Is it possible that they built the very foundational structures of these buildings on a combination of what's called seismic metamaterials, which not only helps control down to the nano-sized particle earthquake control, but it's also part of that engineered soil. So not only are we measuring in the ground and over and saying these two tectonic plates are, are going to create this frequency. And when it gets to that building, we need to have this shape of polygonal. <coughs> Excuse me. I think I might have to grab some water. Can you hold on? Yep, absolutely. Go ahead. Who do we have next week, Jer? Next week we have uh, Meredith. Oh, excellent. I don't know her yes. last name. Swain. Meredith Swain. Yeah. Meredith's I've had her on Lucky my show. Stars. Yeah. Yeah. She's an astrologer and recently uh, kind of saw some of the underpinnings of the social engineering last year. I just got an email from Derek Burroughs, too. He's gonna Sorry about on. that. That's cool. Derek Burroughs from... Uh, I forget okay. So I think... Are we good? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so the idea is, could these buildings be connected to the surrounding Terra Preta or other engineered soils and irrelevant to earthquake? <clears throat> are they... <clears throat> I'm going to keep drinking. It's always a good plan. Do you need a test? <laughs> <laughs> There's an anal swab station right down the street. Uh, you guys have an extreme form of things, I guess. Uh, Let me are, ask you a we're question. Up, yeah, right. We're up to date here. Uh, but like yeah, City. I do think that, yeah, I do think the buildings were connected, not just for the sake of earthquake control, but, the structures themselves would have been part of that piezoelectric network that on a very, very low frequency level could easily transmit ones and zeros. And it's not a technology we're familiar with, or we're assuming that it was in the ground. It could have been information from, again, a biolog what we're, what we identify as a biological network. So a fungus, a bacteria living and working within the soil system, that was part of a root system. That's part of a tree system. And remember the worldwide tree system were not the scrub trees or the hundred foot trees we have now. They were sequoias, meta sequoias, redwoods that were like Hyperion. That's, you know, 380 feet tall. That network, that tree system spanned from not just California where they're still living, but all through Siberia. I mean, pretty much every continental area was very, very, very big trees and a society that can cut and move stone. What they could do with trees is would have been incredible. And, and cool. And mycelium, that, mycelium too. <laughs> well, and plastics, metals, all that's gone. So we look at these large polygonal structures and we go, 
Well, they knew how to move really, really big and complicated blocking, but oh, well, they stopped there. <laughs> and we can't do it today. <clears throat> no, we can't. And, and we have Flinders Petrie's work. We have the work from Egyptologists that are like, well, it's a mystery. But Flinders Petrie's work, even back in the day, there they are. You're looking at core drills that are hundreds of times faster than anything we can do today. Yep. As a historical remodeler, I deal with granite companies. I see their wet saws, their water jet cutters, their mm -hmm. CNCs. It's incredible just to make a countertop right now, what we just to make a flat piece, one inch thick granite. Right. Right. They have like a diamond, basically a diamond flap disc that, that mills it down. But yeah, I, I totally see that. And um, just even, even up to the Romans had the Romans, I think it was Hadrian had moved giant blocks of stone up into the, to the Northern Europe, which is crazy. Yeah. And the, and the issue is it's not just that they're big stones. It's the complexity of the cuts. Yes. That's where you start to lose. Okay. It's not people just moving big stones. It's the complexity of the work itself. And often what never gets brought up, like at Baalbek, Lebanon, they bring up the, some of the quarry stones that are 1200 tons mm -hmm. that never made it to the site, which is like three kilometers or three miles away. Mm -hmm. But then there's the ones that are in Baalbek, and Baalbek clearly looks restacked. I mean, anybody who builds anything, you're looking at a restacked structure. And what's interesting about that is that there were pillars on site. Yes, the dynastic peoples, the the Romans, they they it was a Hellenistic temple or whatever. You know, the Greeks, the Romans were there. But what they don't talk about are the 60 foot tall hundreds. I think it was up to over 200 columns that were single piece, 60 foot columns made out of the hardest stones on earth, perfectly hewn, and they're 60 feet tall and they're massive. And there are columns like that all over the world, along with obelisks that have very crazy frequency and tuning capabilities where even broken sections of obelisks, they appear tuned. They ring like bells, just like Tesla said. It They, they are some sort of either receiving and or sending or both. And again, it just doesn't add up. You, If you look at the devices we have today to, to build these things, we can't build not even close to what they were building in size and scale, but the complexity of every single side of these uh, geo pieces, these complex uh, Lego pieces are not replicatable. We, we can't do it. And that should concern people about saying, well, you know, how much technology do they really have? Well, <laughs> it wasn't just all rock, you know, it wasn't like a super fancy, you know, Fred Flintstone in a white collared shirt going, welcome to our advanced stone cutting society. That's all we figured out. <laughs> right, right. That's, that's the, you know, the basics of their society, of their technology. Yeah. And I don't think you develop into that level. You don't build megalithically if you're not planning on surviving multiple catastrophes. And again, we're also looking at the bases of the structures. What was on top? Were they using wood? Were they using those 60 foot diameter, you know, 380 foot tall redwoods? Were they cutting those into place? I mean, again, dynastically, the places have been repaired. They've been mutated. They've been restacked. But fortunately, we have places where there's literally piles of mud-bricked, multi-ton, 
megalith still laying in situ that apparently no academic institution has the balls to dig up. <laughs> I'm throwing it down. It pisses me off to no end, but the I'm hoping we can change that. Up. The gauntlet is yeah. down. Yeah. Have some balls, pick it up, get out from behind your desk and stop worrying about finding mummies and gold and jewels and start looking at how did they build these foundations? How is it pre-compacted? What are the levels of materials? Is it a 40 foot pre-compacted foundation? Is it on bedrock or does it appear to be bedrock, but is it really uh, some sort of geopolymer or is it a hundred percent compacted soil? Is it again, multiple layered? Uh, these are things that we don't know about these megalithic walls. And I've, I'm, I'm planning work with uh, an archaeologist and she's like, Jared, no one's ever looked at stuff like this. I've talked to Mohammed Abraham in Egypt and he's like, Jared, no one's looked at stuff like this. Now everyone's wanting to find the mummy. It's not sexy to talk soil. Right. It is though. And these are the green doors and this is what we need. These are, this is what's going to be behind the green door. But on this, on this note, we do need to wrap and your voice is shot, darling. So <laughs> I am I'm so sorry. I don't know what happened. <laughs> well, it, you talked for two hours straight. Yeah, your voice is timed with the show anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. It's been great having you. Do you want to plug your stuff before your voice gives up? Oh, stuff. Yeah, look, notaliens.com. So yes, I will be um able to send you a book signed by me if you'd like. I actually go to the post office and do it. Uh, feel free to look there if you're international. I do. It does cost more, but send me an email. We'll make it happen. Um, my book's on Amazon. I have more private exclusive data for members if you want to join the site. I also send out free books. And then um, I will be on the Forbidden Knowledge News Conference first weekend in April. I'm the opening, I'm the keynote on Friday. And then uh, I think I'm part of the conference on Saturday also uh, for a, a big group thing, but that's coming up in April. And uh, you can always find me co-hosting on Conflict Radio. We have stuff coming up tomorrow night and we do uh, live the last Thursday of every month. And of course, there's this thing called the Cosmic Salon. <laughs> I just put our last one out yesterday and then I get to see you again on Tuesday. Yes. So we are, <laughs> you're going to want to look for me on the cosmic salon more because, well, you know, friendly banter and all that could be a whole nother section <laughs> behind the blue door. Right. When we slip into something a little bit more easy. <laughs> well, all righty then. <laughs> there's, there's a way to close it out. Were there any more questions? I really appreciate everybody listening there, live. Was there, there was one more question about uh what weeble wobble sets did you have oh <laughs> you know what i'm really upset about is losing my star wars collection i had i had the original card series that i collected as a five six year old that i would go to the store and the choice was do you want candy or do you want star wars cards and i always took star wars cards mm -hmm. and then that collection ended up in storage along with a bunch of things when i was moving and everything out of that garage was stolen oh. and Oh it my God, can't... that is uh, terrible. Yeah, so it's not that the cards couldn't be replaced or can't be. It was the fact that these are the cards that I collected as a kid just going to the little corner grocery store. And eventually, you know, I didn't have a complete set. It was just all the memories with it, right? So that that was the collectible that uh, after that, I was super bummed. That happened in like 2006. 
seven. But that's too bad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jared. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Hope we can do it again sometime. And thank you, Nish. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Be sure to tune in next week. We have uh, Knox Mente with Meredith Swain. Swain, was it? Yes. Yes, Meredith Swain. Astrologer lady? Yes. Yep. All right. Should be good. We got some good shows lined up for March. So keep listening, and we'll we'll see you next time. Take care. Thank you, everyone. Oh, and I got to say, <laughs> who was who wanted to for me to say this? Shit, Amanda. Who whoever missed me saying the obelisk? So welcome to the obelisk. So good night. <laughs>